Welcome to the second episode in the Talk for Peace podcast series, the podcast series in which we discuss a diversity of creative tools through which to facilitate dialogue in peacebuilding contexts. My name is Heidi Riley and I'm a research fellow in the School of Politics and International Relations in University College Dublin. And my name is Maria Adriana de Llana. I'm a lecturer in the School of HAP at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, together we are co-principal investigators for the Talk for Peace research project. This is a project that focuses on exploring the concept and practice of transformative mediation as a mechanism for inclusive dialogue in peace building. The project and podcast series is funded by the Higher Education Authority through the North-South Shared Ireland Initiative. And to find out more, you can browse the website at www.talkforpeace.com and please follow us on Twitter at talkfor underscore peace. In this podcast, we explore alternative methods such as arts and creative approaches, sports and other special interests that can be used to facilitate dialogue in a peace-building context. More importantly, we will be meeting with practitioners, individuals and groups that use a variety of creative tools in their mediative practice. In this episode, we will explore the practice of visualisation as a tool to facilitate constructive dialogue. Here to discuss this topic, we are delighted to welcome artist and visual practitioner Belfast Stephanie Heckman, originally from the Netherlands. As well as working as a visual practitioner in peace building, Stephanie has worked as a visual storyteller for both COP26 and COP27 negotiations. Stephanie, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here in Northern Ireland. Sure, delighted to be here. So I'm from the Netherlands, but I've done a master's degree in Sweden that was a strategic leadership degree towards sustainability, it was called. So that whole program was to do with how people work together and how you can use your knowledge of people and how we can all work together to drive change. And in this particular context, towards sustainable development in organizations and in communities and in anywhere where people work together. So I got to know about Coromila, which is a peace and reconciliation center based on the north coast here and has been here since the 1960s. And for me, the link was quite apparent uh, because I had been focusing on change processes for sustainability And here, Kuramila had been doing change processes or facilitating change for peace. So it kind of worked for me. And I was really interested in exploring this in an academic context. So I came to Northern Ireland, having been introduced to Kuramila and started out here as a volunteer living on the North Coast for about 10 months. And from there, came to Belfast and stayed Thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear the journey to being here in Belfast and the influence of somewhere like Karamila in how you ended up here. But I suppose just to build on that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a visual practitioner or maybe say a little bit more about what it actually means to be a visual practitioner. Yeah, so I first came across, let's say, the broader field of visual practice when I came back to the Netherlands. I'd been in California for a year I'd finished my studies there and was coming back to a kind of, you know, blank slate. Okay, back in my home country, but starting from scratch. And and where, what, what's the inroad for me into, into meaningful work? And I was pointed to a visual thinking agency in Amsterdam who 
all the people working there came from an industrial design background, but they used their design and, and particularly their really incredible drawing skills to draw not objects of use, but human processes. And it fascinated me because in my undergrad studies, I'd been really driven by the question of what are humans? How do we work? And particularly our psyche and our communication and what are the common denominators in human psyches. And so I had studied kind of a mix of psychology, sociology, anthropology, linguistics, and had kind of come to this question very analytically and very cognitively. But I also have an artistic practice at the time, wrote a lot of music. And as a child, I drew a lot. And so my uncle recommended this visual thinking agency said, well, it's a place that really draws on the cognitive because they are there to facilitate people in their communication and their change processes and, and analyze how that can work best. But they come to it with the tool of visualization to to kind of take that to a next level. And that's the ultimate output is having a visualization of a social process. So for me, the kind of combination or the coming together and the complementary of cognition and analysis with creativity really appealed to me. And that's now a few years on, but I still really get a lot of fulfillment and excitement from being able to do both cognitive analysis than putting that in the world in a creative artistic form. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how visual uh, storytelling is used in what context and then how you came to use it in peace building? Yeah, so the the broader field of visual practice is sort of the umbrella term and it encompasses a number of different practices and formats. It can mean facilitators that draw on visual tools and a really simple example of that is they work with post-its and they give all the participants a bunch of post-its and tell them, look, write your own thoughts on here and then we'll bring it all onto a big board and we'll start shuffling stuff around until we see patterns emerge or themes. That's visual practice. Illustration, commissioned illustrations, but particularly when they are co-produced with the client are a form of visual practice as well because you really begin to dig into what do you have in your mind in your head when you say this what do you see and if you try and unearth that you know of course everybody would draw differently but if you're able to give it shape then it may really go a long way in making what you're talking about more concrete so illustration when done in this co-creative way it would fall under visual practice as well but I suppose the form that you would encounter most is called graphic recording which is where an artist comes alongside an event, um, most often a conference, but it could be a training, could be a meeting, could be anywhere where people come together and talk and think and try and make sense together. And the graphic recorder is there to make a live visual summary of those conversations. And they do that with hand-drawn graphics and with hand-lettered words to bring the essence of words onto a visual summary that captures the essence of the conversation, but then brings in that additional layer of the visual, because people actually speak in visual language a lot more than they may realize, because they speak in memories and in analogies. 
they may speak in real life examples that they see, but others may not. But they also speak in symbols and in metaphor. So there's so much there for a visual practitioner to actually then put on paper and then reflect back to people to say, is this what you mean? And then that can unlock a whole other level of conversation or inquiry into the topic. Thank you. Um, I mean, I can see already how these practices can be helpful in a peace building context. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think are, is the power of this approach? Well, I think that power is a critical word here. I think that in the way that people interact and in the way that they communicate and produce knowledge together, power is a huge factor. And I think that visual practice can go a long way in making visible the power differentials that are in communication or in social processes. And they can do that very simply, even when it's just about words. If one person has more weight in a process or takes up more space or talking space, their words can be represented bigger to show the difference, the bias there. Or you can take power as a visual practitioner and make their words smaller. But you see here you're beginning to play with things that aren't necessarily visible, but they absolutely impact on a social process. So that's one little way. And that happens not just in conflict settings, but it happens in all communication everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And can you maybe give us some examples of peace building projects where you use these kind of practices, either in Northern Ireland or also yeah. in other places? Because of my introduction into Northern Ireland through Coromila, a lot of my initial projects, but even to this day, is collaborating with people that are in that orbit. And so I worked with projects or a methodology really called Dialogue for Peaceful Change that was developed by a Mila associated person, Colin Craig, and his Dutch, actually, partner, Jaap van der Saar. And, and I've also been working alongside a team also of a number of Mila related to people, one of them, Derek Wilson, who've been working on a big body of work called Nurturing Hope. And really what Dialogue for Peaceful Change and Nurturing Hope, both of them tried to do was developing language and mental models that help give insight into relationships and dynamics, and particularly when they are conflicted relationships and conflicted dynamics. And what I've been doing, for example, with the Nurturing Hope project is trying to build on to the language, the words that they've been developing and complementing it or translating it into, into visual language so that when we invite people to inquire into their own relationships in their own lives, to uh, have insight into conflict patterns and conflict dynamics in their relationships, when it is difficult to find the right words to describe their own experience, to try this other approach of what does it look like and can we really break it down in, into very simple um, visuals that anybody could reproduce so that they could begin to map out their dynamics and even draw, you know, what does it look like when someone is scapegoated? Uh, what does it look like when you see a fault line emerge between groups? Um, and these are two examples that are quite visual already. Hmm. So interesting because it also seems that it's something that can reach out and bring in different people who may not necessarily be open to talk or may find it difficult to tell their story. 
and we are both feminist scholars so to think about the questions of power and how you can make them visible I think it's a very interesting aspect of that. Yeah I wanted to pick up on this point that you mentioned around visualizing power and in a sense visualizing relationships as well within that. I just wonder if you could say something about how the visuals contribute to transformative processes. Is it breaking down maybe ideas or allowing people to reconsider their thought processes or allowing people insights, visual insights, into other people's uh, thought processes? I wonder if these are areas that you think can be drawn out by using visual practice. Yes, one very important characteristic of visual practice in the different forms it takes is it's done live. And so it becomes a partner in the conversation. And and there's a few different functions that it it serves. And one of them is access. So when you're talking about, you know, people may not have the words or they may not have the words in the dominant language that this process is taking place in, visuals might Uh, lower barriers to access so there's that element the other one is it serves a really important function of mirroring to people their own conversations their own dynamics their own words or the images that are invoked by those words and that's something that can be done throughout a conversation throughout a dialogue just to say i heard you say this and and invoke this image, whether it was an analogy or whether it was a symbol that may come with certain weight or associations. This is what that looks like when I draw it. Do you recognize yourself in there? But also what does it do when you reflect it back into the space? And what does it do with other people in the room? So there's this process of we're checking uh, we're, we're holding ourselves accountable, each other accountable. We are checking what are we saying here and what's the impact of that on the process. Um, and and we can do that afterwards as well. And that, that's something where it begins to help with bringing the shared learning and the memory retention and the collective memory forming even of a process by taking people through their own conversation one more time, which is something I often do when I'm at a process as a graphic recorder, at the end of, let's say, a day's worth of conversations, I will take people through and narrate them through the visual summary of the day. And that will have captured some of their words, as well as some of the images that they invoked through their words. But perhaps I saw, you know, certain things as well. So I may have done quick sketches that captured something about their body language and their posture and that really does also say a lot and when they see it one more time it's like uh, it becomes anchored in their memory better but it also uh, activates their own memory of the day and it might just help take out the key insights of a day which may differ per person but because I'm there as a neutral witness to the process or and not an objective, but a neutral, or at least I'm, I'm trying to be a neutral witness. I have been there in the capacity of a listener. So so what I hear is what I give back. I wonder as well, in terms of exposing different people's memories of certain situations. So for example, often in contexts emerging from violent conflict, there are always multiple truths. And within peace-building dialogue, often the differences in people's truths 
come out through dialogue. And do you see that visualising people's different memories, different truths, that that facilitates further dialogue between the individuals in the room? Do you, do you see it that it can be used as a recognition of other people's truths within a negotiation? Yeah, I would say so. I would imagine that, you know, when we speak words, and also the way in which we speak words, they often bring a lot of weight with them, which may take us into ruts of response that we would want to stay out of to try and kind of move forward or, or come into new places of meeting each other. And I think that visuals may equally represent someone's truth while allowing that little bit of distance where we can see their truth from their perspective and then take that one extra pause before we then step back into interaction. Can I ask about any challenges that this process may also open up or produce? This goes into, you know, what are reactions and responses to your work? And, and generally speaking, those reactions are overwhelmingly positive because bringing in visuals, bringing in color, bringing in art uh, really engages people and, and gets them really excited. And they like to see themselves. They like to discover that they've been listened to in a very different way. But the reason that I bring this up is also because images are also very powerful and sometimes uh, they can backfire because you might have got it wrong as a visual practitioner. And when these images, colors even, come with weight that you may not be aware of, it might really trigger a strong response in the people that you've tried to portray or whose truths or stories you've tried to portray. And that's happened to me where even the use of a particular color was really triggering for someone and I wasn't aware. So, you know, you're also, you're playing with fire or you're playing with just potentially powerful stuff. And that's something that means you have to approach it with care. So I suppose when people say a picture says more than a thousand words, what also has that potential impact of a thousand words in one glance. Um, and so you're working with those forces and they can unlock uh, a whole new way of responding and understanding and seeing the world, but they can also have, have other strong reactions. <laughs> I should say to the listeners that Stephanie did some wonderful visualisation for um, a conference that we held in Dublin um, a couple of years ago, uh, which was focused on women in peace mediation. And um, as part of the project, she um, uh, did a number of visuals uh, for a short film that we made and as part of the project more broadly. And she also visualised the discussions at the conference. And what I remember very clearly was because we had the visuals up on big boards in the conference venue and after the main event had taken place people would gather around the images and actually it meant that people that were in the audience that wouldn't have necessarily spoken or had need to communicate actually began to talk about the images that were that were there up on on the boards and I think that's really interesting the way that you talk about how bringing art into certain events maybe brings a different dynamic to the room, but may bring others together that might not necessarily communicate. But I know you've worked in, in more political contexts as well, which is often seen as very high-level, 
negotiation, shall, shall we say. Would you say that it has a similar effect in in um, situations like that? Or, or how, how is, does it tend to be perceived in more political forums? Yeah, well, I feel like I should say that I've been present as an observer delegate at two conferences of the party, so the, the UN climate conferences, working with NGOs that were present there, but also working with the UN themselves with the UN Climate Secretariat specifically, but not directly inside formal negotiations. And I think that's kind of the upper echelons that that are so formalized that there's not yet a space for art there live in the process. But in one level, just outside of that inner circle, where there's almost, let's say, pre-negotiations or what they call informal sessions that feed directly into the negotiations. I have been present there and, and what I've seen there is communication there has been formalized with uh, a lot of structure and protocol around it and embedded into it. A lot of technical language and jargon that has been put in place to make sure that there is a shared language, but also to safeguard that space as one where conversations can be had that will become tense, but perhaps where there is an assurance that certain topics won't come up or certain words may not come up. And what I've noticed there is that bringing art into those spaces and bringing a different mode of communication into that space, it has had the same effect as everywhere, which is people really engage with it and they are very curious and they'll come up during the session at little breaks in between and at the end, definitely. And it elicits a lot of conversation that, like you say, Heidi, that might not have happened otherwise because it reaches people in a different way. It might activate people that might not be activated by, you know, very formulaic verbal communication that might have a space to speak other things beside these graphic recordings, beside these visual summaries. And I have found that really interesting. I've noticed people coming up to me saying, I'm missing this little piece. Would you add it? And then five minutes later, someone else coming up and saying, I see that you added that little piece. Could you take it off? So there's this interaction of editing the visual summary. And that's a a fine line to tread because I'm not a perfect listener. I'm not an objective listener. And I will have heard what I heard and try to give an impartial account of what I heard. And then people will come with their own agendas and their own memories And do you edit? Adding things feels better than censoring things off of the summary. But it has opened up a lot of questions for me around the power of knowledge production. And a friend of mine mentioned this term to me a couple of months ago. We were talking about the the power of visuals in communication. He brought up this term of epistemic justice, which is a, a, a fairly new term coined by Miranda Fricker, who brought it, I think, from gender studies into philosophy to talk exactly about this. The, you know, knowledge isn't, isn't the same for anyone, for any kind of knowledge producer or actor. And some knowledge is given different weight depending on who the actor was. And so that is something that I've seen happen in those spaces, as well as any other spaces of who is there in the room, firstly, and who's not there in the room, and what are powerful ways of 
um, uh, drawing attention to is absent and you can draw that you can draw empty chairs you can draw people behind closed doors you can draw people who should be in the room but aren't you know there's so many ways that immediately invoke an insight without people having to kind of zoom in and read stuff but it also talks about and that this is something that I've definitely noticed in these UN climate spaces the other form of epistemic justice that Miranda Fricker talks about is hermeneutical and that's before we even get to are people given enough weight in their knowledge do they get equal access to the whole process of knowledge production do they have the language that they would need do they have the same worldview they would need to even be able to engage in this process and in the case of these UN climate negotiations the language is so technical that it excludes a lot of people from the get-go and it comes with the ability or a willingness to adopt a certain kind of generalized worldview that might not be the native worldview to well m- many of us in the world and so it means that we don't get an equal say or even an equal standing in the production of knowledge and that is something that I feel the use of visuals can really do some work in helping to bridge those divisions. And I was just going to one more point there, just on, on power there. In fact, as a visual practitioner, as a visual storyteller, you actually hold quite a lot of power in terms of what has been said in the room is visualised and, 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 and how you can expose who's not there or you can portray a narrative in a way that you feel is I mean I can imagine you're working as objectively as possible but there are certain elements maybe that you know you hold a little bit of power on building a a, a certain knowledge I think it's about the realization of that first of all and then the taking on the responsibility of using that power responsibly and This is also the mirroring function of these visuals are not just for the participants, but it's also for me as a practitioner to check, did I get it right? Yeah. It's funny because as you were talking, there was a specific image that came to mind around the COP27, and it was a group of young feminist activists from the global south that were standing outside, you know, shouting poetry, And when you said, you know, about the very technical and very kind of constrained ways in which that space operated, immediately that image came to mind. Yeah, and I mean, in international relations, there is a lot of conversation now about not only the power of images, but also the politics, right, of of visualization and, and images and visual kind of elements that really characterize global politics today so Mm. very fascinating yeah and it's and it's about harvesting those little scenes that pop up in people's minds constantly like picking them out of people's minds and putting them on a 2d you know however simplistic it may be but doing something to share what's in people's minds and then what does that do if we bring that into the conversation Mm. i'm sure there's lots of other questions that are going to pop up as soon as we we finish here but I suppose just as a final question I wonder do many people know how visual practice is utilized have you found it's become more popular 
when it takes the form of graphic recording, because people will have gone to conferences more and more now and have seen someone taking visual notes. You know, it's also it's known under many different names because it is quite a niche field still, but people may have seen it in conferences that they were part of or, or, or meetings. But I don't think it is very well known in the additional roles that it can take on as an active tool or participant in the conversation uh, to really get in there and say this is not notes that I'm taking on the side or pictures that I'm drawing on the side here I am trying to visualize and chronicle your process on a different level the level that sits alongside words and it has a role to play in and among set conversation and then from that conversation out into the world with whoever may interact with it. So in that role, I think it is still quite unknown. And it is an edge of practice for us as visual practitioners. I feel like there is a lot more to develop and uncover using that power of, of visualization for good. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, for a fantastic set of ideas that you sparked. I just want to say to our listeners that they can check out Stephanie's website. We will add all the details in our show notes. And then thank you for listening. Uh, If you like the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter for any updates.